Welcome to the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. We're going to explore ways to sharpen our diagnostic skills, find learning resources, and hear from experts in the automotive field. Hey, what's going on, automotive world? Welcome to another episode of the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast with me, Sean Tipping. Uh, I mean, who else is going to do it, right? Um, thank you for joining me today. On the show, joining me as a special guest is a coworker of mine at Century College in White Bear Lake, Minnesota. Also a good friend of mine, uh, Don Simmel. Uh, he teaches in our automotive program. Uh, he's been doing this for 10 plus years. He's been in the automotive field for much longer, working in the independent sector, General Motors, and uh, specializing in some Mercedes stuff as well. Um, also. Uh, one of the smartest people I know in real life. So I've been wanting to get him and our other coworker, which I'm still working on, on the podcast for quite a while. So I was happy to get to sit down and talk with Don about automotive education. I mean, big surprise, we're both automotive educators, uh, but we really get into the nitty gritty, the details of some of the ins and outs and things you got to consider as an instructor uh, that maybe you wouldn't think about otherwise. Some of the challenges, uh, some of the methods uh, that we can use to help uh, get these students where they need to be or what they need to have uh, before they leave our program and go out to their careers. So uh, I really enjoyed this talk. Uh, Don's a super smart guy, like I said. So hopefully you will enjoy this as well. Uh, but with that said, let's jump right in. So I won't try to swear too much so you don't get an E rating on your podcast. I think you got a clean rating, right? <laughs> yeah, I do. There's there's definitely a few episodes. I mean, you get people in the auto industry and that's just the way it's going to go. You get the definitely. curse words out there. <laughs> For sure. We've, we've all been in shops before, so we know how that goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just talked to another instructor from another college a couple of days ago or maybe even yesterday and it was kind of funny. It's like, boy, he's just right, he's like he's right out of the shop, you know. Like we're, we're, yeah. <laughs> kind of missed that a little bit. So, Yeah, for sure. I, well, sometimes I get on the students out in the shop, you know, like, hey, let's be professional. Let's, let's yeah, stop the cursing. But I also realize as soon as they go to work, that's exactly what the, the culture normally is <laughs> when right. you're hard, out in the shop. So. Enough, but I'm better about it now. It's just the three of us pretty much together. <laughs> Right, right. I, 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 for whatever reason, always had that, that switch that I could just flip because I think, cause I had to do service writing when I was a tech quite a bit, like I would interact with customers and you, you kind of have to just be able to boop and, and flip off the, the curse words and the shop talk. If you're going to try to sell a job to, yeah, <laughs> you know, to an old lady well. or something like that, right. <laughs> you can't be dropping the F bombs and stuff. Um, but there are some people who are not good at turning that off. So, <laughs> I got one in my mind, Sean. Yeah, a <laughs> <laughs> current student? Are you thinking? Yeah, or <laughs> good guy? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, um, how uh, how's it going, Don? How's your? We're on winter break. You got any big plans? 
No, I'm trying to uh, rest, do nothing, go nowhere, just lay low, let my body okay. heal. You know, so um, picking up running again in the in the last week, at least hard. You know, where it's going to be heavier mileage. Um, but yeah, pretty much trying to lay low. You do marathons. Um, I used to I used to do those back in the day too. You just you just did the Twin Cities this fall, right? Yes, I ran Twin Cities in the fall, so a little disappointed in my time my training didn't go very well in the run-up having some issues you know but in the heat it's tough you know you train for it you know the summer training on the hot Mm -hmm. days and sometimes with the work schedule you're out there when it's really really hot and trying to nail down your times and and things and and make adjustments two times it's just getting can be pretty complicated and try to do too much and pretty soon your body is not cooperating and that's kind of where I landed with uh with Twin Cities but Going to okay. uh, do lacrosse in the spring, so hopefully that'll go a little better. I think the cooler months of training will help for the uh, the buildup and everything. So hopefully, like to PR next year. That's my goal. Knock some time off. Do you do mostly on the treadmill during the winter months for training then? Uh, regrettably so, yes. Just because where I live... North of the of the metro here, the sidewalks don't get plowed very well, and if you want to run, you're, <laughs> you know, on the road, and you know that's not a very safe place to be. So, um, yeah, treadmill it is. But I've got a nice TV set up and can watch movies, and got a couple fans on there, and so it's all right. It's nice. all right. It gets me by. But by the time uh, springtime comes and it's time to get outside, I'm definitely ready. Yeah, for sure. There's a, there's, there's definitely a difference between doing it on a treadmill and then actually running outside. I always remembered when I would transition like that, when I'd be training, um, and you finally get outside in the springtime, it was, it was almost kind of like a shock to your body because now you've got, maybe you got a little bit of wind coming at you or some hills or stuff. And it's just, it's not quite the same as a treadmill. Yeah, all flat, you're just working the same muscles all the time and uphills and downhills. As you well know, you're working different muscles and even downhill stuff, you know, can be pretty good, Mm -hmm. uh, especially if you're not in good form for it. So for sure. Right. Well, cool. Um, Yeah. So we are coworkers at the same college, which is I'm sure you know, but for the listeners anyways, uh, we both teach in the automotive program at Century College. Uh, You've been there how long? It's my 10th year. Um, yeah, and I'm, this is my fifth year. Yeah, this is my fifth group of students that I have right now. So that's crazy that it's been that long already. Um, how long have you been teaching overall? Uh, it's my 13th year. I spent three years at another college in uh, more of an inner city one and then kind of came out to the suburbs a little bit to where we're at. So, and you were a technician. Prior to this, obviously, um, how long, how long were you in the field before you started teaching? And I know you obviously kept, uh, you know, you kept working in the field after, but I guess maybe the question is, uh, how long have you been actually working on cars? Mm, I think probably before teaching about 20 years, maybe. So I spent maybe okay. five at an independent place and 
five or so at GM dealers and then uh, 10 with Mercedes and then worked part-time with Mercedes after I started teaching just in the summer and occasionally on the weekends just to try to keep current. And uh, unfortunately with, with COVID and then, you know, in, in our program where we've got, uh, we teach part of the body shop program and teaching those classes takes time out of the summer for us. And so it really doesn't, it's not as effective for, for them or for me to work there in the summer anymore. So I might look for something new, something, a different direction to keep current. Um, that had worked pretty well, but at the same time, working on one car line, you working on one car line. And, you know, I, I know I look up to you and all the different lines that, that you've worked on and all the things that you know from doing that. And it's just a completely different experience than my career has been. Um, so with Mercedes, I was 20 years, 20 straight years, 10 full-time and 10 part-time. And, you know, um, while I understand the fundamentals probably pretty well, some of the, the day-to-day stuff I don't have, you know. Um, so I'm coming from a little different place as a, as a teacher than, than some might, um, than you did. So, But I think when you put three different people in a program and three different approaches and three different outlooks, you know, it, it works well, you know, for the student's benefit. So just kind of, yeah. kind of wrapping up for, for me, I was working about, you know, 10 years in the field. I started having a lot of back trouble and I went into my doctor, you know, repeatedly. And he just really said, you need to choose a different career. And I said, well, this is really about all I know how to do. I've got two kids. I've, I've got a, a wife and I've got a house and this is what I know how to do. And uh, he said, well, you better pick something different because your body's just not going to hold up. And I, I know I really hadn't been careful. Um, which I caution the students heavily on now, you know, so hopefully some of them will benefit from my stupidity, but I wasn't careful with my back or my body and it just wasn't working. So I wanted to go back to school initially to get into uh, management in, in the dealership, starting probably at, hopefully at service manager and then moving into, you know, maybe another department or area or trying to move up. And so I started back to school. Um, I went to the U and I got a business degree from the U. I should say the University of Minnesota, which locally here is known as the U. I forget we're not just Mm -hmm. talking to each other. Um, (laughs) So I went there and got a business degree. And kind of right when I graduated, the service manager position came open at the dealership that I was at. And I was pretty pumped. You know, the timing was right. But I didn't end up getting that job. And I was super, super disappointed. And um, maybe two months after a, a teaching job I saw um, at that other school uh, came open, applied for that, and got hired for that. And you know, no regrets. And the the dealership that mm-hmm. I wanted to be the service manager at, seven years into teaching, seven years later, right, called me up and offered me that job. So it's kind really? of funny how things <laughs> happen, but. Uh, I was the right person seven years later, but, you know, at that time I politely said no, because just, you know, teaching for me is, is really a good fit. Um, love doing it. Grateful mm-hmm. for my job. And, you know, we work at a, at a college where I think it's a very collegial and collegial and, and, um, nice place to work. We have nice coworkers. And so it's really been well for me. And for, you know, if we're talking to, People out there, if you've ever thought of teaching, and I'm sure other people on your program have said this before, it's a terrific avenue. I, I really, really enjoy it. And, you know, um, 
I think at the end of the day, when you look back and you've helped other people, you know, grow their careers and help support their families and uh, the things that they need to do, it's it's good to look back and see that. And, you know, you do the same thing probably working day to day on vehicles, but in, in, you know, in terms of that, you don't really see it as directly. I mean, you're helping people to to move around and get around and, and taking away some of the hassles of their life because their car is broken. Um, you don't necessarily see that as, as much the influence you have on other people's lives. And I think that's, you know, if we're getting philosophical, which I seem to be going that way, that's uh, what it's <laughs> all about, you know, at the end of the day. So at least for me. Yeah, it's, it's very personally rewarding. Um, it, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot more work than I thought it was, you know, just looking at it from the outside, going through classes and seeing what's presented to you as a student definitely doesn't give it justice to what is put in, you know, behind the scenes in order to prepare and present. Yeah, right. A really good instructor makes it look easy if they're, they got it polished and they, they present well, but the, the ridiculous amount of time and hours put in for the preparation and the, you know, just the knowledge in general. Right. Is is crazy. Way way more than I thought it was going to be. And and then on top of that, you got stuff behind the scenes like advisory committees and schedules and uh, all all that other <clears throat> uh, administrative type work on top of it too. So it, it it's definitely a job. It's not a it's not just a you know slack off and skate by <laughs> type no, of gig. I'm- but again, it's worth it. For, for me, starting out, I didn't I didn't have the the theory down. I mean, to be frank, I, I I thought I was sharp as heck working in the field, but the things you need to know to teach it, you know, I mean, you need to be able to field questions, and you don't want to get a question from a student and not have an answer and go. I mean, it's okay to do that right. once in a while because you you're not responsible for knowing everything, but there are things that you should know. There's a level of of understanding that you should have. Um, on those theoretical things in particular, you know, and the specifics, maybe you got to look some of that stuff up, but should have the theory down. And I really didn't, I had to really study and work and, you know, I didn't have a, an active um, understanding of Ohm's law even. And now I teach electricity and, you know, I think that, you know, I thought Ohm's law was stupid, you know, Ooh, that doesn't fix a car. <laughs> and, what can you do with that? And the reality is you can actually do a lot with it. You know, if you have real understanding of it, and mm-hmm. we really work hard to impress that on our, on our students for sure. Yeah. So you teach the, uh, the basic electrical uh, and beyond, but you, you're, you're the electrical guy for our program. And what do you, what do you feel as far as the theory of electricity? Cause you can get so deep and so <laughs> into it. As far as the theory goes, uh, it's actually pretty crazy stuff. I mean, how deep do you need to go to present to a student? Is it better just to give them a basic, easy understanding or do you jump into, (laughs) I I don't know. I don't know. How deep do you go? We go in quantum (laughs) mechanics or um, what's the, what's the process there? Well, I think our role is, is fundamentals, a working knowledge. Um, and understand for, for me with electricity, I mean, electricity is, you know, drifting of electrons from atom to atom. That's my classroom definition. Um, I think knowing what electricity is, that it's actually a, a particle that's moving um, from one atom to another and kind of, you know, you don't need to know much beyond that 
uh, at that level. Okay. Um, but circuit operation and how different things affect circuits and how different loads work and, and things like that. I mean, that's where, that's where the money's at or, you know, for us, what the students need to know, but theoretically you don't, you don't need too much, but I do go, I start with um, an introduction to the atom and, you know, they kind of glaze over, but um, <laughs> I kind of do that on day one and just get it out of the way. This is the atom. I need you to know what electricity is. If we're going to test this thing, you ought to be able to tell somebody what electricity is. You know, and a lot of people, that's one of my first questions in the class. What's electricity? You know, you plug in to the wall and something comes out. But what is that thing? (laughs) So, yeah. Um, Yeah, it's it's huge for everything now. You got to have that basic understanding and be able to apply it across the vehicle. So I I push it as much as I can in my stuff, too, um, to try to (laughs) try to integrate it no matter what course we're teaching. but yeah, that that functional knowledge is huge, um, and I mean, I know when I left school, um, I definitely was pretty weak. I probably still am pretty weak on the theory of it all. But it, it's that functional knowledge and being able to apply it to actually fix a car right. is is where it's at. And that I felt like from tech school, I I had a good understanding of how to actually apply it to fix the car. Um, to the point where I was pretty good at it out in the field. Um, but yeah, then, then you go to teaching and you need to explain it to somebody else. And just because you can do it doesn't necessarily mean that you can instruct someone else right. on it. And that requires right. a different level of understanding. Yeah, and, and explain um, it in a way that's understandable. That makes sense. Yeah. You know, and finding all those little ways and methods that work. And, you know, I think the worst part of teaching for, sometimes is you get a method that you think works really effectively and you have a class and you do something in class. You go, man, that was the best. I just the greatest thing I've ever done. It's fantastic. I can't believe I thought of that. And then the next time you do it, it's a bomb and you go, <laughs> but all these students are just a little bit different. The class culture is a little different and, you know, what works one day doesn't yeah. work the next. So it's right. uh, quite a business we're in. Each group of students has their own uh, unique identity, for sure. Um, it's it's that that's one thing that's kind of nice, you know. If you work at just, I mean, almost any other job, you're working with the pretty much the same people or the same group of people on a consistent basis. You know, people you know come and go, but like in a shop, for instance, it's the same group of people you see every single day, and that can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. Um, but with the teaching, you're getting a fresh you're getting it changed up on a regular basis as you get a new group of students. And again, that can be, that can be a good thing or a bad thing. Some of the groups of students I've really, really enjoyed. Some of them have been a struggle, but there's always going to be that reset at the end of the year uh, where you get a whole new group and (laughs) you got to figure it out all over again. Right. And and like we've, we've talked uh, before, you've got your students for an entire year where our, our third person and myself we only have them for a semester so you know you get a, a rough crew you're in for a one-year ride <laughs> <laughs> right right it's uh so sometimes uh, when it's getting to uh to may there i'm just like all right yep ready to ready to reset here <laughs> right. but uh, the opposite's true as well and I, i've stayed in contact with some of them that have graduated and it's it's cool relationships that you build for sure 
Definitely, definitely. Yeah, you get some terrific groups uh, more in, in our place. More often than not, we get terrific groups. So I should yeah. be so negative, but <laughs> right, right, yeah. Um, well, and you know what? Sometimes those challenging students actually end up being the best in one way or another, too. Right? It's like somebody that goes through that's just that A student that just knocks it out of the park. How much did they really need you as an instructor? Maybe, maybe not that much. They were going to succeed no matter what. Mm-hmm. But um, having that student that is, it's really, really tough. And even if you don't, you don't change their lives like drastically or anything, but you make some progress. You change right. that trajectory just a little bit. Um, I think that does end up being worth it. Um, yeah, at the end of the year, even if it was a struggle, even if it was a battle at times right. <laughs> to try and help them, it's, it's worth it. I had, I had a colleague at the, my first teaching job and, and his adage was uh, in any group of students, there's a, a quarter of the students that are going to succeed no matter what you do, no matter how terrible you teach, they're going to do well because they're just geared that way. And there's another quarter of the students that are going to have a hard time no matter what you do, no matter how well you teach. And really, the place that you make a difference as a teacher is is mostly in the middle, you know. And, of course, we give attention to, you know, top to bottom. But, you know, his thing was up that middle area. That's where you really you're going to give the students. You're going to give the students the most that are in that area, I guess, was uh, the underlying meaning behind that. And there's probably some truth in that. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so you went to school, um, you said, for, for business, and then you got your uh, master's in education. Um, did you find, as go- going through and getting those you know college degrees, the high-level degrees, did that change your perspective as a technician, as actually working on the cars? Because you, you weren't going to school directly for that, but did it change your mindset when you were working on a vehicle or trying to figure something out on a car? Uh, I was... I was going to school for a bachelor's degree in in business while Mm -hmm. I was actively a tech. And I I don't know that that had a big influence on me in terms of in terms of that. It made me really think about the shop I was in, the processes that, you know, things like that that are more business oriented. I was always thinking about that. You know, when I ended up interviewing for the service manager position at that place, I had a whole list of things that, you know, I thought. I could improve on. And that was kind of my platform for selling myself. Okay. You know, one of the, one of the issues there was I was a tech in a shop with probably 15 other technicians at the time, somewhere around there. And, you know, coming out of them and then having to discipline them, they felt that would be challenging and it probably would have been, you know, I think that's why seven years later after, you know, a lot of those technicians had changed jobs or, you know, you've got a different, different culture, a different team. Um, then they gave me a call. So, but anyway, so getting, I kind of trailed off on the bachelor's and, and, and the master's degree, but, um, I think the master's degree I was teaching while I was doing that. And, um, we have to do in, in, in our state, in our system anyway, when you become a teacher, you have to take four TES courses they are called, I think it's teacher education series. You can correct me if I'm wrong mm-hmm. on that, Sean. But I just happened to, to, because I had a bachelor's degree, I could do those at, at graduate level, and you had to do them anyway. And so that kind of launched off on a master's degree. And because we're we're part of a system, 
you know, you can use a tuition waiver and you get really good pricing to, to you know, advance your degree. So if you have the time and, and uh, you know, the willingness to do it, it's, it's a great thing. But I mean, I think mm-hmm. the education degree probably helped me more for what I'm what I'm doing. But some of the stuff in management carries over into um, a lot of what we do as teachers and kind of my style in terms of being a teacher and how I uh, you know handle students and, and manage students and talk to students grew out of some of the things that I learned there. You know, and, and you can in in our in our um, in our program, I think all three of us have distinctly different styles of how we approach students and talk to students and um, approach teaching, you know. Um, but it makes for for a, a really good mix. But I think, like I said, a lot of that stuff grew out of that degree, and I have, you know, I was, I'm, I'm glad that I did it. You know, uh, you invest mm-hmm. a lot of time, but you you get a lot out of it, and so it's been good for me. Both of those things have been beneficial. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I know it's a lot of work to get there. Um, I was <laughs> looking at it from the outside as you were finishing up your master's uh, a couple of years ago, and that's uh, <laughs> that was that was a lot of work, a lot of effort you put into that, or at least you know, from the little bit that I saw. So um, it, it definitely cool. was, and I think you know, it's. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad it's over, and I thought about even going further, but. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if my wife would take any more school from me. So, <laughs> yeah, it's my time. I always got to think about Stop. that. That's enough. So, okay. So, that's where you've got a lot more expertise. And I know I've, uh, <laughs> I've stolen some tips and ideas from you on the education side of things because I'm pretty limited on my scope and I, I have no like formal education in education. I took those same courses you were talking about the, um, where you go down and it's like a workshop for new teachers. And that's, that's pretty much it for me besides actually doing it. And so, um, I kind of just try stuff and see if it works. And sometimes it's a bomb and sometimes it works well. Um, but I kind of wanted to talk to you about assessment in our field specifically for automotive. Um, what your thoughts are on the best way to do it and what's been successful for you to really, really tell, you know, whether this student gets it or not, is doing well or not, is going to, you know, succeed in the field or not. So what determines that <laughs> A, B, C, D at the end of the day, the best? For me, it's simple. Can they fix the car? You know, can they okay. take the classroom learnings and can they apply it on the vehicle? Can they get somewhere? You know, and we, we just had a conversation, you know, in our office about this not too long ago. And uh, Sean uses some performance evaluations. And I've been thinking about moving toward that because I really like that idea and the model. But um, teaching in the first year, the the spectrum of, I shouldn't say ability, um, cause that's not the right word, but this, this, where a student is, is at in a given point in their trajectory is, is different. And, you know, you have, I don't know, you have some students that come in and they've worked in a shop already, or they work with their parents. They have, I don't know. Um, but some students are really, really prepared to work in the shop and other students aren't, you know, they Play, what's the car game that everybody plays? Fast and Furious? Is that a movie or 
right? It's a movie, oh. maybe. Yeah, yeah, they got a couple of those. But there's some car games people play, and that's what that's their experience. They thought that's pretty cool, Fast and the Furious, and some car you know, <laughs> video games, and I like cars, and yeah, you know, and that's uh, that's fine. We'll take you. We'll take you. You don't know which end of the screwdriver yeah. to hold. We'll teach you that. You know, we'll start there. <laughs> but you know, when you assess them in the lab and the, the the challenge is you get somebody that comes in and they've got a lot of experience and they're working in a shop and how do you grade them against somebody that doesn't have that experience is really, really working hard, doing your reading assignments, facing the book all the time, trying to put those pieces together, but just isn't in the same point on the trajectory, you know, and, and finding a, a grade for them that, you know, is, is appropriate. So it can be pretty challenging. Um, but I think I like the performance assessment in in the second year. I think you're going to have a, a better time. You have um, kind of more of the top students in there. So, um, but that's what that's the model I'd like to to move to. And I was actually just talking to my wife about that last night and, and going to that and how that would look and how I would do it. And it's I don't want to put undue stress on students because you know yeah. That's tough. And you've seen some of the results even in, in your classes. And, you know, not every student likes that pressure and handles the pressure well. And um, just that in itself can throw off what they're doing and, and you know, kind of lead to a you know poor performance. So, you know, that can be challenging as well. Yeah. But, you know, um, for the moment, the best thing that, that I just have is walking around when students are working, asking them questions. You know, if they're working on something and they're trying to diagnose a problem, you know, okay, you did this test, you got that measurement. What did you learn here? What can you rule out, you know, in terms of your suspect list? What can you rule out? Uh, what did that test, how did that test benefit you? And then what's your next step? And, you, you know, if you kind of pop in and you ask that question and give them some guidance, you get a good feel for, for where they're at. And for for me myself, when I have them do performance things in the lab, I have them document all their test steps uh, one by one, which is a little bit tedious. And sometimes they do five steps and then forget what they did. And so, they, you know, I don't get the, the best thing back on the paper, but I try to have them document all those test steps so I can look and see their train of thought as they're, as they're working through something. And I just want to you know, then you can point out, hey, this is the spot where you got and you made a choice to go left here and you should have gone right. And then you can be corrective in that. But, mm -hmm. You know, I, I really like him. That's that's the best for me. How they do on, you know, written stuff and, and theoretical stuff, less important, you know, because you're going to forget a lot of the theoretical stuff anyway. But just just from... I know that in your courses that you took, and I don't, I don't, I'm sure they touched on this, but you did some stuff on backward design. You did some, probably some work where you designed a course. You start with the objectives, the student learning outcomes or objectives you want the students to learn, and you work, you know, backwards from there. And that leads you to what assessment is going to show you the student has accomplished the learning outcome. You know, that's how you develop your assessment. Okay. That's how you develop all the, the different pieces of curriculum that are going to, you know, build that student up to where that student's ready to be able to do that thing. So I, I don't know how you constructed your courses. And I mean, initially you probably just put some structure together theory and, but you know, it was kind of nice to get that foundation and, and learn that and learn how to do that. And I think that made the courses better. So I redesigned all my courses based on that, you know, 
eight, 10 things you want the student to be able to do when they get out and, and, and when they get done with that course. And if you kind of focus on those things and build everything around those eight to 10 things, I mean, sure, you're going to cover a lot more theory, but when they, when they get out, if they take those eight, 10 things away out of every course, you're in good shape, you know? And of course the eight, 10 things aren't, you know, there's other things that build into those eight to 10 things, right? Um, I want a student to be able to measure voltage, you know, for an example, well, there's a lot of things that build into being able to measure voltage, but um, that's the point of backward design. You figure all those things out and then uh, put them in a natural order. And um, hopefully the student is, is engages with it. You know, I mean, that's everything, getting a student to engage and, um, that results in an effective program and uh, a quality student that can go out there and, you know, kill it out in the real world. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's, that's a really good way to put it for you know, somebody who hasn't taught before, uh, you know, how you would construct something is have that end goal in mind and then work backwards. Um, and yeah, w- what should they be able to do? once they get into a job at a shop doing this, like what are the, you know, the basic markers that we want them to be able to hit and things that we want them to actually be able to do. And then, yeah, work backwards and build that into your course and make sure that they can do that or assess whether they can or can't do that. Um, and I mean, I do, I do those performance tests and it's, it's definitely eye opening cause I don't do it every course. I just finished up the semester with one and, unfortunately it's only five out of 16 passed that specific test, but that's why I do it halfway point in the year because now it's a good assessment for them and for you, you know where you're at. Yep. I can, I can adjust course and I can, um, address some of the things, you know, as I watch them go through these, because basically I just set up a broken car and they have to tell me what's wrong by themselves without any help from me or other students. And, um, you know, like you said, the, the thought process going through it because they're new to this and they'll take a left turn here. Um, or maybe they'll just be completely off the mark. Um, maybe, maybe they'll stumble upon the, the, the fix that happened, um, or that happens where they just happen to find the part, not necessarily through, you know, testing, yeah, and that's um, and that's always thought, bad process. That's always bad. The accidental <laughs> right. find, and then they're like, oh, "I found it. See, told you. See how good I am. No problem. <laughs> I got it." Yep. Yep. We, I mean, we definitely run into issues with you know students that have the mindset of, "I want to, you know, fix the most complicated things. I want the newest technology, and I want you know." Really, we're in the business of fundamental. I, I see our business as fundamentals. We don't necessarily have to teach you everything about a 2021 model vehicle with full ADAS and you know all this. We're teaching you fundamentals. Your next, your employer is going to take you from you know wherever we leave off with you. Um, we're going to give you the best mm-hmm. we can. We're going to take you from point A to point B, and wherever your point B is, your employer picks up and takes you to point C. So. Yep. Um, so with COVID the last couple of years has made our job pretty interesting, um, for a number of reasons. Um, but one of the things that kind of forced upon everybody was doing the online delivery. And we did a lot of recorded lecture rather than live lecture. It kind of gives 
us some flexibility and the students some flexibility on when to watch it. But anyways, now I have all these recorded lectures for my class that I'll assign outside of class. And I know when I went through those courses, um, getting ready to teach, that was one of the methods that was suggested is, I think it's called a flipped classroom where you, you have the students, you know, go through the, like the book work or the facts, you know, the material, the theory outside of class. And then when they come to class, you spend the time face to face with them applying it and, you know, actually utilizing it rather than, you know, me lecturing up there for three hours on something. They already hopefully read the material or watched the material. And then you spend that time applying it. And I, I have not fully integrated that, but with the whole COVID thing, it kind of nudged me towards that where now I have a bulk of material that here, go, go watch this outside of class. This is your homework assignment. And now when we got our face to face time, we're, we're applying it to something. Um, what's, what's your experience with that? Well, um, I think that the flip classroom and, and the kind of some of that grew out of. I'm just going to speak to the work of Eric Mazur. I don't know if you ever heard of Eric Mazur, but he's a Harvard physicist and he did some work with uh, peer instruction and flip classroom. And I think starting in the 90s, and kind of what he found in, in his classes was he had these brilliant Harvard students who obviously get into there, you're top of the top. And he was giving them, I mean, some of his stuff is just electrical stuff, just like what I teach in my classroom. But what he, what he was finding is the students could do these complicated calculations, but if you really gave them something that was more real world, uh, an application of the same type of problem, they had no idea what was going on. And so he developed, um, he called, I think he called them concept test, concept test, something along that order. Um, that would be these real world applications just to see where students were at. And they just really, really struggled on them. And so he thought, well, this just isn't, isn't working. And that's where I think he kind of got the idea for that flipped classroom. And you're going to spend your, your time outside of class working on the theory part um, instead of having the theory delivered in the classroom. And it's, it's a, it's terrific. I mean, in, in theory, this is a terrific way to do it because you get to do all the fun stuff. I mean, delivering the theory, again and again right. and for somebody that teaches the same you know handful of courses every semester you know going through the theory over and over and over and over again um, isn't super exciting and you know for for them we're eating up time we could do something else with and if you can get the students to to do the prep work it's fantastic but you know in, in our program there's some limitations because we have a lot of contact hours and so if it was maybe, you know, a couple classes where, you know, you met a couple times a week and it, our program wasn't as, as full-time as it is, there's probably more time to do work outside of class and, and put that flip classroom model into place. So I think it would be pretty challenging to move to a full model like that, but mm-hmm. um, at, at least a partial model is terrific. I've definitely done that um, moves, um, w- with recording all these lectures. It's terrific. And for students who've uh, been sick with COVID or something else, they can get on there and, and watch a recorded version of the lecture. It's all ready to go. Um, students who want another look at the lecture that you delivered um, are able to do that. But I haven't really gone to, in only a couple places, 
to all the prep work is outside of class. I just have trouble getting okay. getting that prep work done for everybody. It's very challenging. And if the prep yeah. work isn't done, it's a fail for the whole design. It's just not going to work. I think that's probably the biggest challenge, at least in our area, because we don't teach at Harvard. <laughs> so um, it, it's whether the student actually takes the time to go through the material or watch the video or whatever is required. And that's, that's been my obstacle too, because then they come in and we're jumping right in and they have no clue what we're doing or talking about. So it's tough. Right. Um, but the point, another point I was going to just bring up is, you know, all the different little things that you kind of learn in the, in those education courses, they all add a, a little piece mm-hmm. of value and you can probably take, you know, and use, you know, for me, I pick and choose what I want, what, what's effective, um, and, and one of the things that, that I had done in, in as an assignment as part of my graduate degree was you had to do a lecture just with all questions. So, and I don't know if you ever oh. did anything like that, but I was preparing. Uh-huh. This is more than 10 years ago, but I was getting ready um, for a lecture on cooling systems. At the time, I was teaching a class where we had a little piece on uh, engine cooling systems. And so... I just designed question sets that were trying to lead the students to, you know, think on their in their own mind as we're talking about it of how things should be. And, you know, really, even if you hadn't done the prep work, you know, you start up with why do we need a cooling system on a car? You know, and that leads into well, where the heat builds up and, you know, and at least you could, if you design your question sets like that, it, it, you can really get a pretty amazing lecture, I guess, if you want to call it that. Um, that's wholly different than just a, a normal lecture. So uh, much more active. Right. And so I, it's, it's funny that I did this and it was probably the best lecture I ever gave. And I never did it again. <laughs> and I kind of was thinking not too long ago, why haven't I done more of that? And I guess you kind of laid, sometimes you lay down your base curriculum and then you know, like you said, you get busy with the advisory committee and uh, advisory notes and uh, shop tour and schedule and lots of other little things that kind of eat up your time. But I think that's another thing that another thing that really worked well for me was a lecture based on questions. And I'd, I'd encourage you, Sean, try that thing out or any, if there's another instructor listening to that that's never tried it to develop it. But it's really cool and very engaging. And the time that I did it, I, I, I almost couldn't believe how well it worked, you know, and huh. can I replicate that every time? Probably not, but man, did it work well. But I spent a lot of time thinking and figuring out, you know, kind of anticipating their answers and then anticipating how I lead them to discover some of the underlying theory, you know, and it was cool. It was cool. So, um, Let's try that again. Yeah, soon, soon I've got some time off here. I think where I said I'm doing nothing, but um, I really do <laughs> trying to do nothing. <laughs> yeah, you got to take that break every once in a while. Um, you know, somebody had said something similar to me when I was just getting started teaching, and I don't remember what this person did exactly. I think they, I think they taught one of those courses that we were talking about, like teaching teachers how to teach. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the quote that he told me was to ask a lesson, right? Instead of teaching a lesson or telling a lesson, you're going to ask a lesson. That was the, that was the theme of what he was trying to get across to me is that, you know, the best education, you know, that 
or the best way that you can present this to the students is to get, ask them a question and get them to the to the correct answer. Um, but that's right. that is harder than you might think in order to ask that right question. And oh, you get, yeah, the group of students is going to matter too. Um, you know, there was a year I had a group of students where nobody wanted to talk in the you know in front of the class. Nobody wanted to bring anything up. And so it was really, really difficult to have that communication. And then you have some groups of students where you can barely get them to stop talking. <laughs> and so it can yeah, get out of here. Usually the problem. In. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but yeah, that's, it is, it is really important. I found, and I got this from those courses too, was if you're going to do a lecture, which I still do, right. I just talk about a subject for X amount of time and cover here's the points that we got to hit um to break it up um every every at least 10 to 15 minutes with a direct question or something that you're going to ask of the students or here do this draw this out or let's figure this out you know talk to the person next to you to break up that lecture um cuz otherwise like you said they're glaze over like they'll just they'll just be gone if you're just talking for an hour straight, even if they're interested in it. Right. I've been right, to right. Uh, training events where I'm interested in the stuff. I'm a nerd about this and I'll lose focus when somebody's just talking for an hour straight, even though I love this stuff and I want to know about it. Your, your brain just, it wanders. So breaking that up with questions along the way is, is definitely a, a good tool to keep everybody focused. Right. You can't let that information or try to get the information in faster than students can process it. And you have to stop, let them reflect, let them think, let them engage somehow, some way, every so often, whatever way it is. Definitely. Um, I mean, I don't think lecture is as terrible as people make it out to be. I don't know that there is, um, you know, I, I hate to be on your podcast and be in favor of lecture, you know, because I'm, I'm not exactly a lecture <laughs> advocate, but if, if there's, you know, lots of better ways, why when I walk down the hallway at our college is everybody lecturing, you know, um, uh-huh. in every room? Um, the initial presentation of material, I don't know that there's a, a better way of doing it. If students were willing to do it on their own, that would be terrific. But that's not always the case. Um, but like mm-hmm. you said, you have to make the lecture entertaining, interesting, yeah, every 10, 15 minutes, you have to do something. You have to make them think. Um, you have to ask them questions or activity or something. Otherwise, you lose them and they're they're gone. And they're going to stare at you and you'll say, hey, does that make sense? And they'll nod their head and then I'll say, okay, well, then explain that to me. And they go, uh, I just did that the other day. <laughs> you know, does that make sense? And the student yep. in the class nods his head. Yeah, so big, big nods. Uh-huh. And, oh, explain it a little bit. Uh, I don't think I can. Uh-huh. So, um, I mean, that's kind of uh, metacognitive, right? It probably came up in your classes, yeah. metacognition, or, you know, just the ability for a student to really think to themselves, do I understand? You know, they're kind of thinking about their own thinking. And naturally good students, uh, apparently from the research, tend to have good metacognitive skills where they can naturally read something or look at something and then they ask themselves, do I understand that? Do I get that? You know, it's kind of something like that always kind of came natural for me and it it doesn't for everybody. 
you know, to, to do that. And that's where we come in. We've got to get them to, you know, force them to think about stuff. And that's, that's our role. We're a facilitator of learning and um, that's where it's at getting them to think. Yeah. That, and so what I've noticed is a lot of times, like you ask, okay, does everybody get that? Does anybody have any questions on what we just covered? And they'll say, yeah, we get it. No, there's no questions. That's the whole class. And <laughs> every time in reality, I know that they have questions. There's at least half of the class that have questions. A lot of times it's the same question, but everyone outside of a few individuals, like there's certain people who just don't care and they'll say whatever's on their mind. But I would say the majority of students, majority of people, I think, because I've been this person in, in a training course, is I don't want to put that question out there because I feel that everybody else gets this and no one else has this question. I'm going to look stupid. Right. And that's one of the challenges I've had to work to get around is just, I just, I tell everybody like, just ask questions. You know, this is, you're all learning. You're all beginners and there's no dumb questions. How often has somebody asked the question and then you went, man, that was a stupid question. You know, right. training, yeah. I mean, no, you I go, Oh, that was a good question. I, I, I want to know that exactly. you know, most of the time. Yes. So yeah. Some of the best things that I've, explained is off of a question from a student. So I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. There's the, there's the sticking point in me explaining something is shown through their question. And now I can go into detail on that. But what I've done is um, you do the anonymous question, right? So take out a piece of paper on what we just talked about, write down something that you want to know more about. You didn't understand. I didn't cover enough. Just write it down. Don't put your name on it. Everybody pass the paper to the front. And then I go through these questions and invariably there's like five or six questions that are the same, right? So you know that people are wondering the same thing, but they're not saying it out loud. Do it anonymously and you can get there. So I'll do that on a semi-frequent basis. Um, and it's, I, I have to remind myself of that. Yeah. I have to remind myself of that when I'm going through a lecture is like, okay, I'm saying this stuff. I understand it. Maybe I'm doing a good job at explaining it. Maybe I'm not, but there's questions out there. There's, there's things that they don't get. And I have to keep that in mind and try to get it out of them in, in some right. fashion. And there's other methods to do that too. I'm sure you have some of your own. Yeah. Not only are you going to get five to six that are the same question, everybody is going to have a question. Everybody writes something on there. You know, just about mm -hmm. everybody's always writing something. I, I, whenever I do that, same thing. Um, but I was gonna, I was gonna talk about that Eric Mazur because I, I kind of talked about his work earlier and, and the stuff with um, um, where he did. He also did a lot with peer instruction, and that kind of grew out of his concept tests. I just kind of wanted to to mention uh, that a little bit. So um, his idea when he had students in for the post-theory concept tests, you know, like we've been talking about, um, he would give those, give those students question sets, and then he would use clickers or some kind of a personal response device to um, take a look at how they answered. And what he's, when he developed questions, um, he'd probably pick a question that would give about a 50% correct rate Okay, and then if you can get about a 50% correct rate, um, what you can do is you can have the students turn to somebody else that's in proximity and then have those two discuss the, um, the problem and the answer to the problem, which is, you know, 
can work really well in theory because, you know, like you had brought up, we know this theory pretty well. You know, once you present your material, you know, 15 times, I mean, you know it backwards, forwards, um, and everything. And, and when somebody doesn't get it, you kind of go, I don't know, I explained it great. You know, I did a perfect job. I'm amazing. And, you know, to you, maybe you are, but you have known the material for for so long that, um, you don't always have the best way of explaining it to a student. And sometimes another student who just learned it and understands the little pitfalls and, and struggles that it took to, to learn that particular thing knows better than you. You know, they're, they're more empathetic, mm-hmm. too. They understand where, you know, where that student's coming from. And so he used peer instruction along with that flipped classroom. I guess that's the, the point I was trying to make going back to that. And it just kind of... You know, what you, your comment just kind of brought me back to that a little bit. Yeah. Um, having students help teach each other is huge. Uh, like you said, um, if, if you've been doing this for 20, 30 years, it sometimes is really tough to remember exactly what it's like to be a beginner. Um, and I guess the longer you teach, the easier maybe that is because you see the beginners every day. But like if you just jump into teaching, right, you just start. It's tough to remember what it's like to start out, like the mindset and the the narrow view that you have of the world and this career and, and trying to figure out these complex things. You're explaining it from a perspective of somebody who's been doing this forever and they're 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 new, right? They're young, they're new, they're figuring this out. And so having somebody else with that same perspective boy, that can be really, really helpful. Um, and that's why I think doing the groups that we do out in the shop can be a, a really powerful tool, right? Because we have them work on cars either in pairs or sometimes three. Uh, I don't like to go a whole lot more than that except for specific things. But yeah, they can really um, they can really help each other out if you get the right people together. It doesn't always work. Sometimes somebody leans on someone else a little too much. Sometimes personalities clash. Um, sometimes they just goof off, but, um, you find the right pairing of students and many, many uh, possible pitfalls there for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, that's actually one of the things I've tried to do is maybe if you have a student that's a little bit more advanced and is doing really well to the point where they're almost bored, um, when you're going over the basics is to try to pair them with somebody who is really struggling and try to nudge them into a teacher role too, because that'll benefit them. Right. That's, that's where you learn this stuff the most is by teaching it. And, um, you can kind of do that, but again, it doesn't, doesn't always work. Uh, Personalities don't always jive (laughs) exactly the way you hope them to, but yeah, I definitely agree that getting students to teach other students is is really beneficial. I mean, there's so many different ways to do it through, you know, little presentations they can do or even just one-on-one. But very, very helpful. Yeah, I definitely forget what it's like to to be a beginner, but, you know, having taken other classes in, in business and education and starting out there and trying to wrap around the theories, I guess, you know, there's so many blind spots. And then, you know, for us, there's a whole, you know, vernacular out there for an uh, alphabet soup of acronyms and you know that we use and we start spitting that stuff out on day one for these students and you're talking about you know this and that and if they don't even have the lingo down yeah that's a a struggle and you assume everybody knows what uh you know i don't know tps is 
Right. Right. But he doesn't. Well, it, I remember when I was starting out, it was really simple words that I would just wasn't familiar with. Um, I remember bushing it, for instance, when I was just starting out. Right. And I didn't really grow up around cars or fixing them anyways. And I remember, I think it was Tom Troll saying the word bushing. We're talking about transmissions. I had no, I had no idea that meant nothing to me. Like a bush, like outside, like what? And it wasn't clearly explained. It was just sort of like, we're just talking about a bushing. And, um, you know, it was, I just remember that in my head. Like, I don't, there was nothing like nothing popped up in my head as an image when he said that word. And so eventually I figured it out, of course, but that's the sort of thing where you can just say something and it seems really, really simple, but there might be somebody in there that has no clue what this simple thing is. And now they're lost. Like the rest of what you're saying makes no sense. Makes no sense because of that one thing. (laughs) Yeah. So, and that's, that's tough to spot because everybody's, everybody's different coming from a different place. So what do you think about, okay, we use a lot of uh, online stuff now. Uh, During COVID, we kind of transitioned completely online for a couple months. But what do you think about our online stuff and the gaming of students? I'm turning into the podcaster here, I guess. But the the gaming, I mean, like we use Electude. I don't know if you can say the name of things like that on your program. Um, But we neither, we don't endorse it. We don't hate it or love it, but um, yeah. we have it. And I think sometimes with Electude, you can use some of that for prep work. And we've talked about the flip classroom earlier. Um, but one of the problems we have, at least I have, is students game it. And they click through, they just do a click through rather than trying to actually learn something from it. And it just seems like the more we go toward some forms of online delivery, the more they can get gamed. Um, what do you think the effects are going to be long-term there? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because you see the same thing in the workplace too. Um, I, at least when I was at Firestone, we had online training modules and nobody, nobody watched it and really very few people would watch it and actually like try to absorb the material. You just click through it or fast forward the video or, just click until you get the right answer. Or here's the other thing. One person would go through it, get the right answers and then give it to everybody else. Right. And I'm sure all of us have done that at one point or another for something where we're just trying to get that busy work done or whatever. And maybe that's the thing is if it's looked at as more of busy work, it's a lot um, easier to just try to game it in some fashion. Um, I'll say this, it is tough to create an assignment. There's a lot of work that goes into creating an assignment that is difficult to game, right? That you know that they're going to have to do specific things and work a certain amount in order to complete this assignment with a passing grade. Um, And it's also challenging to instill a sense that I have to put work into this to the student, right? That they feel like, okay, I need to actually try and put effort into this and not just click through it. Um, that, that might be even, <laughs> that probably is the most challenging part is how do you instill that meaningfulness into an assignment to a student? Um, that's been, that's been tough for me. Um, 
one of the ones that I use is the case study that they present to the class. And so I'll have a couple students that are out in the shop during shop time, you know, find a problem on a car, go through it, document their steps, take pictures, video record, whatever. And then they present it to the class and it doesn't work for everybody, but I think because they have to get up in front of everybody else, they'll at least put a little bit more effort, <laughs> you know, into it and not just, not just half asset and, and put zero effort into it because they're being at least viewed or critiqued by their peers. Um, but yeah, as far as the future, I don't know. Everything does seem to be going <laughs> online. Right. We're all going to be plugged in soon anyways, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think there's going to be more pressure for uh, flexibility. Um, yeah. And it's going to be challenging. It's, it's interesting to see what the future is going to be like. But, you know, I've probably got another, you know, 10 to 15 years left in this game. And if you stick with it, you got a few more than that. So it's going to be interesting. That's for sure. Yeah. What do you think about using Kahoot in the classroom? Um, okay. And if anybody's not familiar with what Kahoot is, it's basically a quiz that you set up prior to the class and it's a website and you present it on a class. A lot of times it's like multiple choice. You can put pictures or videos up there and the students will connect with either their computers or their phones. And it's a competitive game, right? So the, the person to get the correct answer, the fastest gets the most points. It's like the, um, the buzzer game that you play if you go to a Buffalo Wild Wings. Same thing, but in a classroom and we're using the classroom material to do it. Um, my thoughts on it, I like it. It sure engages the students quite a bit. Um, I think at least in our field, you know, automotive, we have a lot of 20 something year old male students and competitiveness sure drives them. And that's not true for everybody. So that can exclude some people, but it really gets them <laughs> engaged and excited when they're battling for that top spot. Um, I like, I definitely like using it, if nothing else, for the engagement side of things. Uh, the one limitation is sometimes people can't get their phones to connect, but that's, that's more on the technology side. Um, but I use them, I use them pretty frequently. Um, I, I know you use them too, right? I do as well. And I find them pretty well. My, my only curiosity is for the person that's not on the leaderboard. Yeah. I'm curious how, how that is. And, you know, I mean, usually the same people kind of are at the top of the leaderboard and they're engaged. I'm mm -hmm. just wondering about people who aren't. My, my, you know, just looking at it from a teacher's point of view, being having been in the classroom, it looks like everybody's having fun. They really get engaged yeah. with it. Most, most all groups seem to get pretty engaged with it and pretty like the competitiveness of it. And it just adds that extra little thing that, you know, really gets them going. But mm -hmm. um, I was just kind of curious about yeah. the person who's, you know, does poorly on the, repeatedly on a Kahoot, how that, how that feels or, you know. Yeah. Well, see, and I, I do some other game type things for like reviews in the classroom. I'll do a Jeopardy style one. And I had a who wants to be a millionaire style one and stuff like that where it's competitive and, you know, there's maybe a winner or a loser at the end of it. And yeah, that is something to consider is 
well, it's something to consider about teaching in general is that not everybody is like you, right? So if I were to lose at one of those games, it would drive me to do better. Like I would want to do better next time, but that might not be the same effect on another person. They may just see it as like, oh, I'm stupid. I shouldn't be doing this because I'm last in the class or I always lose, right? Um, And that is that is something I should definitely consider because I I use those kind of tools a lot because like I said I think it would it inspires me if I'm in that situation I want to be the best right I want to try to be at the top that's my goal and if I lose it just drives me harder not the case for everybody so um yeah maybe it's something where you want to use it <laughs> sparringly or find find some other methods to sprinkle in there as well for somebody who's maybe not that quick on the draw for a Kahoot. It's just something I've thought about because all, it seems like in the classes I've had pretty much the same people are always at the top. And I think it shows the top five, you know, on when, when we're doing it, I think on their phones, they can see further than five though. Yeah. uh, I think you're right. I think they can, well, they get their point total. And so I think they see where they're at uh, within the rankings or the within number the rankings, that they're at. I, don't know. I just, if you were consistently yeah. at the bottom, I wonder if you'd go, uh, maybe I just don't have this, what it takes and turn off. Yep. I don't know. People respond differently. Just like you said, uh, for you, it would drive you harder, you know, but yeah, mm-hmm. that's not everybody. And a lot of uh, things to kind of get figured out as we kind of navigate teaching, you know, digitally uh, in part, uh, for the future, for sure. Well, and I, I think we both experienced in the last couple of years more, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Not, not mental, but like psychological, um, challenges or maybe emotional challenges that, that students are dealing with, um, coming into the classroom. And a lot, lot more so than when I was going through school. Um, it when when I went through school, and not to say this is right, but when I went through school, it was like you got to be here every single day. You got to do you got to do the work, and that's it. There are no excuses. There's nothing. There's nothing else. Like you're sick, I'm in. You're not feeling, you know, right. Come in. You got to do this stuff. <laughs> I remember I was. I was so sick and, and this is how different today is than, than back in the day. I was so sick and I, I attended the college that we go to. One of our coworkers was my instructor at the time. And I was, I was, I had the flu, like I was like sweating and pale and I just felt terrible. But that was the thing, like you got to be here or you're not going to succeed. And so I remember I came in just sick as a dog. I actually passed out in the shop right in front of the door to where your transmission dyno is. I fell over on the concrete floor there. I was so sick and I got up and I continued the day and I finished it out. And again, not saying like, Oh, I'm so tough or anything, or that's the right way to go, but that's the difference between the past mindset and now. And um, yeah, I I don't know. I think the world has changed a lot, obviously over the last two years, but then what, students are bringing in the classroom, I think is, has changed quite a bit too. And it's, it's tough to navigate as an instructor to try to, sometimes it's tough for me to sympathize with that. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I want to, I want to be 
I want to provide to them what they, what they need, be there for them. Um, but yeah, right. it's, we want to, we want to teach the students we have, not the students we wish we had, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, well, it's going to be interesting to see how things uh, proceed over the next few years. Uh, with everything the way that it is. It's, it's crazy out there. <laughs> that it is. That it is. Well, cool, man. Uh, thanks for doing this with me. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. It was a lot easier than I thought, John. Once I figured out how to operate my side of the computer, (laughs) we're good to go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, It's, uh, we'll get Tim on here too at some point or another. I just know he was busy with his schedule, so I didn't want to bother him. (laughs) Yeah. Someone I could see Tim just with you laying on the ground going, Sean, you better get up. You got a car to finish. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Get those brakes done. Get those brakes done. Get that thing out of here. I, I think I think it was Bob actually that was like, "You got to be here. There are no excuses." <laughs> yeah, I guess I went through. Yeah, I don't know all my. I never turned in an assignment late, and I'm you know in bachelor's and master's degree. I never turned in one assignment late, and I went did both of those with a family and a you know, a a house and kids and wife. And um, so sometimes sympathizing to somebody that's single and young and isn't as easy as as maybe it it should be, you know, because I know I had to do things. I've studied three o'clock in the morning for a test the next day to work and then take a test after go to, you know, a class and, and take a test after work. So I definitely know. How to, how to, you know, there's yeah, challenges, that, yeah. but it, it builds you into who you are. And, and I think as, just as a person, if you have, have challenges and then you, you know, continually, you know, succeed and meet them, it, it builds you and, you know, you get that confidence. And if you don't, you start losing confidence and you kind of go the wrong way. So, um, just try to keep those yeah. as confident as possible, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That that is the other side is you don't want to handhold too much because adversity is good for people to actually push through something that is challenging rather than just say oh no that's okay you know that's hard you don't have to do it um, to actually push them uh, to actually <laughs> make it difficult that that does that that is a big reward and um, it, finding the right place to interject that to not destroy their confidence or whatever and. Um, actually build them up that that's a skill in itself um that the performance exam that i just finished up right five out of 16 passed and there were some low spirits at the end of that for sure but i i emailed all my students i was like hey you know this is what it is um you you can't grow while you're comfortable and and happy and succeeding at everything that's not where you improve that's not where you get better you got to have some failures you got to have some things that don't work out for you and, and push through it. And that's, that's how you get better. So definitely um, if, if it was, you know, it, if it was a bunch of me's in the class, right. That's, that's all I'd be doing all the time is the hardest stuff possible and pushing <laughs> them. And they, they'd, they'd want to, they'd want to meet that challenge. Um, but not everybody does. So got to try to remember that. And there's, there's a balance for sure. It's tough to find. Yep. And once you think you kind of got it all down, you get a new crop of students and they're all different. And what they respond to is completely different. 
you know, I like my, my MO is, you know, as you know, I like giving students a hard time. Um, you see me walking around and, and I probably bother Sean's students too much. I walk around and, and you know, while they're working and say stuff to them. <laughs> Sean kind of looks at me, and just go away and leave these guys home. But, you know, I think that's for me, you know, that I like making a connection to the student as best I can. And for for mm-hmm. me, I like razzing them just like in a shop, giving students a hard time. And, you know, some students respond to that really well. Some don't. You got to know ones that really don't take that well. <laughs> Maybe not yeah, do that there. Right. But most of our of our students that come in are, are pretty good about it. And it's, uh, it's a good time. All right. Well, thanks again, Don. You're welcome. I appreciate you having me on here. Um, you must have ran out of reputable guests that you uh, came to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I've wanted to get you guys on for a long time. I just uh, no, it's fine. hope I didn't make uh, too much editing for you. Um, well, I better cut that out. And, well, that's that's not good. <laughs> uh, we've been talking for about what an hour, thirteen minutes. It looks like hour here, fifteen. So. Yeah, see if you can get, you know, half an hour podcast out of there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure it'll be fine. I, I edit out very little, actually, um, on most of the episodes. People are like, oh, you can edit that out, but it's all, it's all good conversations. So. Yeah, very true. Okay, that's going to do it for today's episode. One more big thank you to Don for spending some time with me on the show. Tim, you're up next. <laughs> um, and uh, I want to thank everybody else for listening to the show and uh, the increasing amount of feedback I'm getting uh, from everybody that's listening. Uh, it's awesome to hear from everybody, uh, all the different walks of life and different perspectives that you all have on the automotive industry and how some, you know, small show like this can actually benefit uh, people out there. It's pretty cool to hear. So keep it coming. And if you want to be on the show, reach out to me. Uh, I haven't said no to anyone yet. So (laughs) we'll get you on here. Uh, We'll talk about uh, whatever you want within the automotive world. But with that all out of the way, let's get out there and start fixing the world one car at a time.